Hello and welcome to Town Hall Tattle. So we're back again talking all things South Yorkshire and the politics that comes with it. We've made it into 2022, nearly two years on from the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, but the virus is still at the forefront of the news agenda in one way or another. Let's say hello again to Lucy Ashton and Molly Williams, who cover Sheffield, and Daniel Andrews, who is across all things Barnsley and Rotherham. Well, there's one place to start, really, and that's the situation with Sheffield City Council's chief executive, the highest paid member of the authority, and the lead on every single aspect of the council. She's come out and admitted and said sorry for having leaving drinks when she worked in Whitehall during lockdown. As her part of the government machine at the time, she was uh, leading the COVID-19 task force. So on the face of it, it doesn't look great. So Lucy, you've got the latest on this. The backstory is pretty well known by now, but what are some of the more minor details we might have missed and what's going on more generally now? Hi, George. Right, this takes us back to late December 2020, just before Christmas. Um, Kate Joseph, as you've just said, at the time, she was Director General of the COVID Task Force. She was leaving that role and she was coming up to Sheffield to take on the Chief Executive position at Sheffield Council. Uh, she started that job in the January. Now, she hosted a leaving drinks party at the Cabinet Office. If you cast your minds back, at the time, London had just entered into tier three, which had the highest restrictions. And if you remember, everybody was being told we had to limit Christmas to just one day. And then we pretty much went straight into a lockdown um, between Christmas and New Year. Now, the Sheffield Star and the Sheffield Telegraph knew about this party. And we repeatedly asked Kate Josephs about it. In fact, I asked her on the Monday as the story broke on the Friday. Now, Kate Joseph was asked by three different people on three different occasions. And she repeatedly, categorically denied this. This was via her comms team. Then, all of a sudden, on January the 14th, she issued a statement confirming the party and apologised. Now, it took a few people by surprise as to why she had suddenly announced this out of the blue. But just minutes later, a national newspaper published the full story. Her statement said she had gathered with colleagues who were at work that day. Um, but it was later revealed by Newsnight that an email had been sent to 40 guests. So kind of from this, Kate Joseph's obviously moved on from Whitehall. She's in position at Sheffield City Council. This is where Sheffield really comes into it. This has left, you know, quite an awkward situation now for the council. She's not been in the job too long. She started it during the pandemic. She took over from John Mothersall. So what's the, what's the situation now? It's quite an unprecedented situation. And one thing to remember is that council leader Terry Fox was as surprised by this, um, along with the rest of us. He didn't actually know about any of this until the Thursday, uh, as the story broke on the Friday. Um, so everybody at the council, um, everybody from councillors to um, members of staff were completely sideswiped by this. Everybody found out at the same time on Twitter. 
Now, Kate Joseph's hastily went on annual leave last week. She's now on paid leave from a £190,000 job. A cross-party committee of councillors has been set up to investigate whether any further action should be taken. But the options are limited. They can decide to do nothing, not, not to pursue or to progress this any further and to draw a line under it. They can advise that she should get an informal warning or they can call for further investigation. And it's unclear what exactly that means or how that would happen. Um, the councillor said this committee won't report back until after the Sue Gray report. Now, we know the committee met once last week and it's got another two meetings scheduled in the diary. So we'll just have to see how it coincides with the uh, Gray report. OK, and what's the reaction been? I know roughly how people have reacted, but in terms of people from Sheffield, what have they been saying? What's the general reaction been to this news that... Uh, Kate Joseph attended basically leaving drinks whilst London was in uh, COVID restrictions. People have actually been incredibly hurt. There's, there's anger and there's disappointment, but there's real hurt about this because people thought in Sheffield we were all in this together. And we are, although people are quite horrified at what's been happening at Downing Street and with the Prime Minister and civil servants, they are, to some extent, a bit detached, whereas people thought Kate Josephs was one of us in Sheffield and we were all in the same boat. And I think if she'd messed up with something like the local plan or some other council business, people would have been a lot more forgiving. But this has really hit people's hearts because a lot of people suffered, suffered very badly during that pandemic by sticking to the rules. So what have some of her defenders have been saying? Because one thing I've heard is that this happened in a previous job, has nothing to do with her time within the post at Sheffield, although the, the wider ramifications could speak more broadly on this issue. She's a really good candidate. She was by far the best candidate when the selection process came around. That's what some people have been saying. And, you know, this is really bad. But in terms of its effects on Sheffield in the day-to-day -day in her role... It's not really connected. Now, other people will disagree with that, but what would you say to those people or what's the kind of caveat to that in that respect, Lucy? That's right. Um, I, I have to say the people defending her are, are quite a small majority, but those speaking out in her defence say, look, the council is just transitioning from a committee, uh, from a cabinet to a committee system the governance of the council is uh, in real upheaval. Um, it's going to be incredibly difficult to um, set a balanced budget. There's some serious uh, financial problems ahead. We've got um, we've barely had a year of a coalition between Labour and the Greens. So the council as a whole is just facing very uncertain and unsteady times. And those um, allies of Kate Joseph's say the worst thing to do would be to get rid of your chief exec at a already um, unsettled time. There's also, um, you know, HR and employment issues. Although she's a chief exec, 
um, she is still an employee of the council. And um, there's some people who've said, you know, should what you do in a previous job affect your current job? But I think the problem is we're still in a pandemic and we still have restrictions. And can Kate Josephs attend the unveiling of a COVID memorial? Can she sit next to the director of public health and talk about hospital figures? Can she tell school children that they need to wear masks? And this is the problem. This is not an episode from a year ago that can just be neatly parked and forgotten about because we are still in the grip of COVID. Okay, thanks, Lucy. Very interesting points uh, on that. And I'm, I'm sure there will be an update in due course and we will, you know, wait to see kind of the outcome of the committee and what they decide. Uh, we're going to turn now to the planning process and all that comes with it. It might not be surprising to hear, or it might be for some people who listen, that stories of planning applications are usually really popular with readers, but how future applications could come about is neatly arranged in the up-and-coming local plan over in Sheffield. Um, lots of councils, it'd be fair to say on this subject, that lots of councils have already published their local plan. They're going through the, the more final detailed consultation stage. Doncaster, for my, in, my, in my example, where I cover, published theirs. It's under a bit of contention from some areas. But Sheffield's still dragging its feet with this. And again, I don't think this will help with the Kate Joseph situation as well. Something that also kind of has, has a knock-on effect as well. But we're going to talk about it anyway. And Molly has the latest on this. So in short, Molly, what's the latest on Sheffield's local plan? Yep. So Sheffield's very long-awaited local plan has been about a decade in the making. <clears throat> and it really needs updating because the current local plan it comprises policies from the Unitary Development Plan, which is from 1998 and the core strategy from 2009. So quite a long time ago. Um, it's been delayed several times uh, in the past sort of decades. And most recently it was delayed last year. So it's now not expected to be in place until 2024, a year after the government's deadline for local plans. Um, so right now, councillors are in the process of deciding a spatial option. And that's really important because this will be the foundation for the plan. Uh, the spatial option is basically the approach the council is going to take. And it's a really tough decision because councillors have to balance the pressures of housing, which, as we know, is in a crisis, um, economy and trying to generate uh, more space for jobs and that sort of thing, and protecting the environment in Greenbelt, which has been at the top of people's sort of priorities. Like there was feedback uh, to a consultation uh, last year. And people, most people said they really want to protect the green belt as their main priority. So what are the options currently and what are the councillors leaning towards in this situation? Yeah, so there's quite a lot to unpack here. So bear with us. Um, but basically, there are five options that councillors, uh, council officers have set out and each have their own pros and cons. Option one is a brownfield only approach. And the options uh, sort of get more, use gradually more undeveloped land as they go up to option five, if that makes sense. So option five is the extreme on the other end of the scale to option one, and it would see as much building in the green belt as necessary to meet the government's housing supply target. Now this is where it gets a bit more complicated <clears throat> because the government's housing supply target has been heavily criticized by council officers, councillors and campaigners who all say it's really unrealistic. Leading councillors uh, said it was like it has been done on the back of a fag packet. 
and uh, it is and it expect and if they were to um, build all these houses, they'd have to build castles in the sky. Um, so before all this sort of kicked off with the government increase in the housing supply target, which happened last year, the council planned to build around 40,000 homes by 2039. Uh, the in government, when the government increased it last year, the target was now made to 53,000 homes in the same time period. So quite a big jump. Uh, officers have advised that the council doesn't need to hit that target. It's just sort of a starting point. Uh, and if it did hit that target, it would mean building more than 16,000 homes in the green belt, and that would affect 7% of it. Um, so basically, that would mean seriously harming the environment and undermining Sheffield's reputation as the outdoor city. <clears throat> so uh, bringing up to where we are now, uh, so far, the Climate Change Economy and Development Transitional Committee, which is quite a mouthful, voted on this for the first time, which is sort of like the first time that councillors have stated what the preferred options are for the local plan. The majority of the committee voted for option three in the middle of the two extremes. And basically this means some building on a green belt next to existing urban areas. Um, all councillors are gonna have their say at full council, which is coming up. Um, and before a final decision is approved um, at the corporate executive next month. So it's all kind of fast moving at the moment. Um, and we should by next month, have a good idea of what sort of Sheffield's local plan is going to look like. So you say it's fast moving at the moment, but obviously it's taken a very long time to get to this point. Other councils I've mentioned are already well down the road with this. Why is it taking so long in Sheffield? Yeah, it's been hugely frustrating for councillors and pretty much everyone that follows Sheffield Council. <clears throat> um, so the latest delay last year, like I said, was blamed on the increase in the government housing supply target. But opposition said that it's basically a lack of political leadership was to blame for multiple delays over several years. Because this has got a bit ridiculous now. It's basically a decade of delays and kicking it into the long grasses, uh, some councils have said. Uh, and local plans are really important because without it, Sheffield Council has less control over where developments go. And we've seen it in um, sort of recent planning inquiries, <clears throat> the local plan, the lack of a local plan, an up-to-date local plan has been blamed for um, for not for <clears throat> sort of like Sheffield not really having control over where things are going. Um, so yeah, so we really need to see the council crack on with this now. And hopefully. Um, Hopefully, that's where we're at now. They get it, they decide on a spatial option and it gets through. I think a, think a more localised example with that would be Althorpe Fields, am I right, is where they basically yeah. said that they had this planning inquiry and the fact there was no local plan in place meant that, because um, I actually don't live too far from the area in question in Althorpe and I sometimes take my dog on there and stuff and I sometimes just think as a, as a kind of a, just a resident of Sheffield how it's ended up with that. It's a, great green space for people to go walking, but there's going to be hundreds of homes on there. I know homes are much needed, but obviously, you know, they did say, look, there was no local plan in place and that really contributed to to that situation. Thank you, Molly. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to definitely come back to this in the future. We're going to move on to Rotherham now and with Danielle. Thank you for waiting, Danielle. Uh, if I just scroll down my script, I will uh, turn over to Rotherham. So there's a lot of interesting stories in Rotherham, but this one just jumped out on me straight away when Danielle uh, sent over the email. We often send emails to each other trying to, you know, 
tell us what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but there's nothing compared to the campaign to change the name of a park. At uh, first glance, this wouldn't really bat an eyelid. It would only be a small section in the paper or online. But this involves Paul and Barry Chuckle, the Chuckle Brothers, uh, one of Rotherham's most famous exports. I'm showing my age now, but Chuckle Vision on CBBC back in the day was absolutely brilliant, and I'm definitely all for the name change. But in all seriousness, Danielle, what's the detail behind this? Because this is not a news story, but this is kind of a, a rehash of a, an older one that's gathering some more momentum. Yeah, so this is kind of, it's been going on long before I took up this job. Um, so I've kind of jumped into it in the middle. Um, I've spoken to independent councillor Michael Bennett-Sylvester this morning. Um, he said there's going to be a consultation to ask residents for their ideas. And um, he wants to rename Oldfield Road play area, which is in East Herringthorpe. Um, in, in, it's in a bid to honour the Chuckle Brothers, as you say, one of Rotherham's most famous exports. Um, and it's also just to sort of inject some pride into East Herringthorpe. Um, as most of you all know, Paul and Barry Chuckle were born in Masborough and then they lived in East Herringthorpe right up until their early 20s. Um, and Councillor Bennett Sylvester says he, he hopes that the tribute is going to encourage kids in the area to kind of work hard, achieve the dreams. And it's a way of saying, you know, look what you can do if you do work hard and put your mind to it. Um, and he said something that kind of resonated with me because I think I'm about the same age as you, George, and Chuckle Vision were massive. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I still say to me, to you, whenever I'm doing out, like, in the house, it's one yeah. of those things that I think that's probably one of Rotherham's most famous exports, isn't it, to me, to you? Um, but Councillor Bennett Sylvester said that the chuckles have given us a lot of joy. And it's it's also to make a statement to young people in the area that if you work hard and you apply your talents, this is the kind of thing you can achieve. Um, I think it's important to do something to one of them. Like I say, Chuckle Vision gave me loads of happy childhood memories. I know I'm not alone in that. And I really think that we should be celebrating success stories wherever we are. Um, the Rotherham Advertiser ran a campaign back in 2019. Uh, they got a petition set up to rename a town centre square, Chuckle Square. And their petition gained about 1,600 signatures. But it ended up getting thrown out um, it never happened. So I do hope Councillor Bennett Sylvester's successful in his campaign because I'd love to see a chuckle park. I mean, just on a just again on a personal note, I'm absolutely astounded that there's not more given of this because I know the, the Chuckle Brothers, especially in the late nineties, were absolutely accused. They were everywhere from Christmas pantos, they went all over the all over and they were and they weren't shy in the fact of really, really promoting Rotherham and the town of Rotherham and the borough really putting them on the map. I can remember one episode where they trotted out in Rotherham United kit and played a game at the old Millmore ground once, and it was just just fabulous as a kid to watch. So I'm absolutely astounded why how Rotherham have not really seized on this. Um, you know, they're not Hollywood actors or anything, but they are very well known uh, in the realm of kids' TV and still, you know, relatively uh, well known even to this day. I know, uh, obviously, the sad news a couple of years ago of the passing, but it's at the same time, I just find it astounding that you can't even get a park for these two great blokes. I mean, I'm really banging the chuckle vision drum here, but um, I don't know, but it's something definitely that will, that will keep on and fair play to Rotherham advertiser as well. You know, they've, they, it's a great classic ex example of a, a local story in a local paper where they take up the baton and try and get this through. I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not heavily involved in Rotherham council, but I don't know why this hasn't really got more traction. So we'll, we, will, we will be uh, watching this with some great interest. Just going to turn to Doncaster quickly. 
But this kind of touches on every part of South Yorkshire. It's to do with buses, and we could talk about buses all day. And basically, we can all, none of us here would say that they're very any good in South Yorkshire. But obviously, it's a, a heavy topic at the minute. So, councillors in Doncaster have joined calls from Sheffield, Rotherham, and Barnsley in calling for the network to be brought back into public hands. A motion by Mexford First Councillor Andy Pickering was agreed with some small amendments by the Labour group on Doncaster Council. Um, campaigners, uh, mainly from Better Buses South Yorkshire, uh, who comprise of environmentalists and trade union members, have called plans by Mayor Dan Jarvis to get the ball rolling on this topic, much like in West Yorkshire and Manchester have done. Uh, campaigners are also angry about plans to enter a enhanced partnership with operators such as First and Stagecoach. Uh, this basically brings the local authorities and the uh, bus operators together more closely to thrash out uh, routes and stuff like that. But from my, my understanding, I think you know the final say will again be held with the operators. So Mayor Jarvis has defended the position the MCA is taking at the minute, uh, saying that entering into the partnership is the only way to get money promised from the government's bus back better proposal to improve services up and down the country. But the authority will look at a number of options, including the franchising model. I know that the city region meeting today, they have discussed this in some detail, but there's going to be more details coming out of that uh, later on. So that's where Doncaster is with buses. I just want to ask you quickly, Lucy, um, slightly off topic, but you will have kind of knowledge of this. Um, Dan Jarvis is stepping down as mayor. We're now at the end of January, the election's in May. There's four Labour candidates that are actually battling to get on the nomination. They've all pledged to pretty much bring buses back into public control. He's not going to push for something so radical as to change the bus system from root to stem four or five months before he stands down, is he? No, I mean, I, I would imagine he almost becomes... Um an exiting uh, mayor. I think uh, the deadline for Labour Party members to select the candidate is this Wednesday. So we'll probably hear an announcement maybe by the end of the month next week, uh, once all the votes are in. And then I imagine that person will then um, be the, become the mayor in waiting, so to speak. And, and the, the whole focus, I think Labour will shift the focus from Dan Jarvis to their new candidate in the hope of uh, getting them some votes with the electorate. So I, I would imagine, yeah, technically he'll obviously remain as mayor until May, but probably be winding down a bit more and, and passing the baton. Yeah, just a reminder on those four candidates. So it's uh, Oliver Coppard. For, uh, these are all Labour candidates, obviously. Oliver Coppard, who was the candidate in Sheffield Hallam, in 2017 or 15, Lucy, is that right? Is 2015? Uh, yes, that's right. So he's relatively well-known in Labour circles uh, in Sheffield. Then we've got a uh, ca uh, former councillor, I should say, Lewis Dagnall, who was on Sheffield Council but isn't anymore. He's seen as the uh, the left candidate, as from various press releases that I've received. Uh, there is also councillor Jane Dunn in Sheffield. Is she still on Sheffield Cabinet? Is she still in the Cabinet? Yeah, education, yeah. Yeah, for education. So very prominent Sheffield councillor, Jane Dunn. And also Rachel Blake in Doncaster, who is a Cabinet member for Children's Services as well. She's a very senior councillor in Doncaster. So they're the four people who will be going out to try and get members' votes. And, you know, with no Tory candidate announced so far, and I have asked the Tories about their candidate and they've not really got back to me on this, it does seem 
you know, Labour are the heavy favourites to take the seat. So, I mean, I've I've been dubbed Lucy that this this selection process is the election. If if you win the nomination, then you you yes. Yes, I, I am really interested to know who the Tory candidate will be, though, because there has we have got far more um, Tory MPs now since the last mayoral election. Um, we, we have had a bit of a resurgence of the Tories in parliamentary seats. So it'll be interesting to see if if that does have more of an impact. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see who their candidate will be whether it would be somebody like David Chinchin um, or Ian Walker, they've previously stood before, um, or whether it will be a, a newcomer. I mean, I've been speaking to the Tories in Doncaster and they have got nine or ten councillors from the top of my head, so they have a, a fairly decent chunk of, of councillors. None of them have come out to me and said, oh, I'm definitely doing it, or uh, they're going to put themselves forward. I know Rotherham literally went from zero to 16, 17 overnight, and they've got a big presence in Rotherham now. But then again, I don't think the whole thing with Boris Johnson would help no. anyone because it costs a lot of money. I can't see the Central Conservative Party giving them a war chest to go and try and beat Labour in South Yorkshire. So a lot of it would be off their own backs if they were to put themselves forward. Uh, but we'll wait and see with that. Um, just a, a quick announcement on the uh, South Yorkshire mayoral contest. Uh, the Green Party have announced uh, Bex Wyman uh, is going to be the candidate for the Green Party. I spoke to her uh, last week. She was uh, with campaigners in Doncaster calling for uh, Bolsa to be brought back into public control uh, as per that motion that was uh, debated in civic office last week. Uh, she's a mum of two from Door, and she's a senior analyst. Um, and she says she's, you know, she doesn't hold any council position at the moment, and uh, she understands business very well in her role. So she says she's kind of a she's, seen, she's kind of portraying herself as the outside candidate, and has got loads of real world experience, and uh, you know hopes to unseat Labour uh, this coming May. Just very quickly, want to mention uh, something more of a light topic. Uh, uh, kind of a motion that was put to Doncaster last week. Uh, so councillors have uh, passed a motion to ban the release of balloons and sky lanterns off council-owned land. So this is a bit different because there were there, there was some confusion at the time because one of the Tory councillors took issue with the fact that the council were going to come round people, people's houses who lived in council houses, local authority-owned homes, and stopping them releasing a sky lantern for a loved one. This is just, you know, banned off uh, authority on land. Obviously, the premise for this is a lot more councils doing this because obviously uh, it has can have a quite a devastating impact on, uh, you know, farm farmland, farm life, animals who are eating these balloons, gets into the rivers and the streams, pollution and the litter. Um, and uh, one councillor even said that he witnessed a sky lantern nearly hitting buildings going over and it landed in the field but you know if the if a sky lantern hits a garden shed i know fire services have gone out before from sky lanterns that have gone off so uh potentially this could have a wider effect across south yorkshire uh, mm. i know usually once there's a motion put to one south yorkshire council other councillors from that same group go oh that's actually quite a good idea we'll mm. we'll put this forward again um so I've got, sorry. That, sorry, George, does that mean no uh, balloons being released at funerals then? Well, this is the thing. I think this is the, the this is the contention that some 
some somebody raised and said, I agree with this motion on the basis of, you know, it's really harmful to wildlife and potentially, you know, it's causing fires. And especially with big fires on peatland out on Hatfield Moors, which cost the council hundreds of thousands of pounds to get under control and released a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But they did kind of kind of have this notion where they're saying that, look, we don't want to become the fun police, but we want to kind of get the message out there that this is not the best choice. If you want to uh, if you want to mourn a loved one, you do it in a slightly different way. We're not going to tell people what to do, but this, we're trying to set out our our situation. So in theory, Lucy, if they if a family who were mourning a loss of a loved one went onto a, a recreation ground, for example, uh, that was Doncaster Council owned, they let off balloons and sky lanterns into the night, technically they would they would be spoken to. Mm-hmm. Again, there needs to be more conversations about the uh, you know, the the punishment. Um, and I'm sure be interesting with places like Krems, won't it? Yeah. I've certainly been um, at the Krem where dozens of blue helium balloons were let off. And you can enforce rules a bit more strictly to Krem, can't you? There's actually, you know, staff there to enforce it if you wanted to. So it will be, um, it'd be interesting to see how that's tackled. Yeah, I think the the wider details on the enforcement, but I think it was just more of a conversation to start off with. They put this motion forward. Um, the same Tory councillor who I think got slightly mis- misunderstood the motion um, was bemoaning the fact that the council will be coming around people's back gardens in count- who live in council houses and stopping them releasing balloons. And he actually produced his, his own balloon in the council chamber himself, much to the hilarity of a lot of councillors. Um so just a bit of a just a bit of light relief to end the podcast, and uh, yeah, I'm sure this motion probably will be picked up by other South Yorkshire yeah. councils. Um, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that one. Definitely. Well, we've landed bang on half an hour. I think it's a good time to to let ourselves go and get back to work to our day job. Uh, for me, this is a for me this is a great forum just to kind of let off some steam and just uh, chat about everything that we've been writing. It's all well and good tapping into your keyboard, but it's very very good to get it out there and. Uh, put this into a, a different platform. So I'd like to say thank you to all uh, my contributors, Lucy, Molly and Danielle. Uh, we'll see you next time and thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>